Yes, my name is Robert Macmillan, and you're all very welcome to the latest edition of Erchul and Hjoil, and his traditional music podcast in which we go behind the music and talk to trad A-listers about the people they are and the music they play. And for anyone who doesn't know, Andrehid is an arts centre based in Belfast which promotes the Irish language and traditional music throughout the city. Fiesian made the music in the Glen and from Ahente Shoran Tri or Corihach Shaw, the Flor Quilty in the Glen Major and Kyol tradition, the Kudanakyol Tri is far da will on. Yes, you're all very welcome to the latest edition of Urkhul and Kyol, Andrea's traditional music podcast in which we talk to Trad A listeners about the people they are and the music they play. This week's guest is Paddy Glecken, one of the greatest fiddlers Ireland has ever produced. Uh, he's lucky in that he has dual citizenship, one as a true blue dub, and the other as a spiritual resident of the homes of Donegal, where his father and mentor, Tom, was raised. Uh, I can spend the rest of the podcast reading out Paddy's achievements, but let's uh, listen to them on himself. Uh, you're very welcome to Urkud and Coyle, Paddy. Good morning, good Roberts. It's great to be here. Looking forward to our chat. Okay, well, let's get stuck on the first question. And because of this horrible phrase, uh, the new normal in which we are living, uh, how are you managing to get through the co- this coronavirus pandemic personally and musically? Well, it's kind of, it's been a strange sort of an experience. Uh, the first thing I would say to you about it is there's been some great benefits to it. Uh, because a, a lot of things that I, you know, that you kind of take for granted, uh, they're not there anymore. So you have to re- kind of recalibrate uh, the way you think about things. Uh, for me, it hasn't been really that difficult, I have to be honest about it. I've been very, very lucky. Uh, I've been able to take a lot of exercise. I live quite beside the sea, so I can do a lot of walking. And, you know, I have the time then to play music at home at the house. Uh, there's no performance, which is, of course, you know, a, a big disappointment. And, I mean, it's, that's not looking even like remotely likely for the next couple of months until we're somewhere close to a vaccine at the moment. But I've done a few little sort of projects online uh, and I've been involved in, a few, in some television work, which has kind of kept me going and has kept me interested. But uh, I sort of, you know, we're coping very, very well. Mm-hmm. Well, as, as far as the music uh, is concerned, could we be seeing the end of the traditional music session as pubs and halls and venues close to uh, the music playing public? Well, I think I, I think it's you know we're not going to see sessions for a good long time, you know. And the idea of 30, 40, 50 musicians sitting down, you know, right squashed up against each other playing tunes, that's you know I can't see that happening, for, you know, for for a long while. So the essence of the sort of the music in terms of the social element of it, I think that is uh, that's going to have to be re- rethought, and I think musicians are going to have to rethink how they're going to actually you know interact with each other. Uh, how they're going to, you know, and, and, pl- and, and play with each other. I don't know. I, I, this is all dependent on, on, on the way this uh, virus is going to behave, and none of us seem to know the answer to that. Yeah. It's an incredible number of musicians who hear their first tunes while lying in bed, unable to sleep because of the excitement they get listening to the music that uh, the big people, that the adults are playing downstairs. Was it the same for yourself? Oh yeah, like in my house, my, my father was a policeman and uh, he played the fiddle and you know, he was a big, big, strong, tall man uh, from, from West Donegal and uh, he came to Dublin and 
Like the one thing I think that sustained him when he was in Dublin and, you know, as he was trying to get used to it was the fact that he, this music was always in his head. And uh, like one of, you know, our, our childhood memories, like all my two brothers and myself would be at home at night when he'd be on night duty and he'd come up for his break and he'd come in and he used to put a clothes peg on the bridge of the fiddle mm-hmm. to, to dampen the sound down and he'd play away uh, for, you know, for 45 minutes when he'd be there. And all you could hear was his tap, his foot tapping, you know, his big foot tapping. So that's the kind of a, a, a soundtrack of my childhood, you know. And, you know, hearing tunes that he played, <clears throat> they're still with me and I can still, I can still vividly recall them, you know, and I can recall those nights lying in my own bed and hearing him downstairs playing. And sometimes I might get up and I might go down and play with him. Uh, so, you know, they're very, very cherished memories. Yeah, and then was it the, 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 the well-trodden path of the, turns you, the tunes you learnt at home and then cultus and going to sessions? Yes, it was. Uh, the, well, I started the fiddle uh, studying classical music. I was sent to the College of Music and I was, I was there for seven, eight years. But, uh, you know, parallel to that, I was learning traditional tunes from my father. And then at, summer, at school holidays times, he would bring me to sessions in Dublin. Uh, and uh, they were mainly in, in the Church Street Club, which, which wasn't the Coltus branch. And uh, then later we'd go to the Piper's Club. But we were very involved uh, with Coltus uh, from about the late 60s through to the 70s. Uh, and my father was, you know, was, was quite active in, in the organisation. So through that, you know, there was a lot of uh, social interaction, a lot of sessions, a lot of travelling. Uh, meeting other musicians, particularly meeting musicians of my own age, which was very, very important to me because it's very important to have a social context for music. Uh, and that, that was a great help to me. So yes, that's the path I think that an awful lot of people in my generation would have trodden. You're also very lucky, I suppose, in that you were able to meet all these uh, uh, great fiddlers. Uh, you even got to meet uh, Johnny Doherty when you were about uh, nine years old. Now, Johnny is, is almost deified. Uh, at the minute amongst uh, fiddlers. What was it about his playing that set him apart and made him such a, a modern icon? Oh, well, I mean, I think I think the first thing is just his musicality, number one, and his technical ability, uh, number two, and his, his, his the sense of drive and the way he's able to articulate tunes is, is quite extraordinary. And it's really, really forceful. And there's a huge, huge sort of upfront personality in the way he played the fiddle. Uh, I first got to know him, as she said, as a nine-year-old, and it was a it was a wonderful time in my life. I was brought by my father uh, to the Reeland Bridge in Donegal uh, because he was he set up a meeting with John John Doherty for the late Brendan Brannock, who was collecting for his Dance Music of Ireland, and John Kelly, the great Clare fiddle player, came. So we headed off over uh, Halloween weekend, I think, uh, back in '64, I think. Anyway, BZD694 was the registration number of the car. I still remember it. And uh, we spent three magical days in, in, the, in the Belfort Tower of the Crows in Donegal, in the Reedham Bridge, recording John and listening to him playing, listening to him tell stories. And for a nine-year-old, that was absolutely magical. Yeah, and you're very into this uh, connection between the, the person and the instrument and the music. And that's very, very important uh, to you. Um, do, do you think that's disappearing now, that connection, you know, that, that human connection? Because, you know, you were able to sit and chat uh, with, with all these great uh, musicians. Do you think that in this day and age that's dying to death? I, 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 I don't think you can have one without the other. You know, uh, there has to be a connection. 
Uh, and one of the big problems, I think, like one of the great things we had was this was the sense of, of of trying to search for music, actually getting into a car and driving, you know, long distances to spend two nights in the company of a musician whose whose music you were kind of attracted to and whose music sort of interested you, and the ability to sit with them and and it was as important to be able to speak to them as it was to be able to play with them. Uh, because you're getting to know everything about them and you get to know their views and you got to know their sense of their, their sense of their music and where they saw it coming from. And it was just, it was that kind of one-on-one -on -one experience which was so intimate and so absolutely brilliant. Now, in those days, we didn't have archives. We didn't have, like, we didn't have music at the touch of a button that everybody has now. So, I mean, if I mention a musician, say like Paul O'Keefe or John Doherty to anyone, they could just go online straight, hit the button and they have it. Whereas in our case, we had to drive 180 miles uh, to, to, get, to get to it. But what, the, what they're not getting is the sense of the person. You know, and, and, and that's, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's their, their, their context, their social context. Uh, and all that, I think, really adds up and, and, and makes it, you know, really important. And I, you know, I mean, I remember, oh, way back in the 60s and 70s, like particularly, say, a player like John Kelly in Dublin, who was a wonderful player, fiddle player, but a bit of a father figure to every one of us. But I'd often sometimes call into John on my way home from work. And he'd be inside of the local having a, having a pint after his day's work. And we'd spend the evening talking. We mightn't play tune, but we'd talk about it for, for three, four or five hours. But other, other times we'd call in, yes, we would play a tune together. So it was that sort of, it was a very relaxed, it wasn't forced, and, you know, it, you just did what seemed natural, you know, so you, you responded in, in that way, you know. What I find nowadays with a lot of musicians is that there's a, it's hell for leather, sit down, play, and I don't see anybody talking. I mean, you know, you, you, you go to different summer schools and, you know, a, a bunch of younger musicians, say, from a particular class, they come down, they set up camp, and they just play with each other. They do what they do for the other 51 weeks of the year. Instead of maybe saying, sit down and say, okay, there's a guy over there who's from another part of the country. I'd like to hear what he has to, you know, what his music is about. And it's to make those connections. And the thing has become so, it's really big and it's so successful in terms of the numbers of people playing. But I kind of worry that there's a certain spirit being lost in all of that. Okay. Um... Some people come to traditional music later in life, either as players or maybe just as an audience. They discover traditional music and they want to go to uh, gigs of, of all kinds and sessions and things. So this is maybe an odd question, but um, how do you look at traditional music to learn? If you go to a session and you're looking at a, at a fiddler, for example, or if you're looking at their whole wish along the road, what do you look at? Do you look at the, the bowing? Do you look at the speed of his fingers? Or do you look for something that's less and ta less tangible, you know, like emotion or feeling? So how do you look at a trad musician? Well, the first thing I do is uh, I try to listen, which is really like basic to this whole operation. So I listen and I just try to, try to take in what the musician is doing. Sometimes some musicians will make an impression on you like, because they're so technically proficient and so really flamboyant in the way they play it. Other musicians are slightly more introvert, may not be as technically proficient, but who can somehow or other, they can chart a course with tunes that brings a meaning out that sometimes touches you. So you, you, you must approach it with an open mind, I believe. 
And then there are times you say, well, why did you like that? But you say, well, God, his, his you know, kind of say, bow string technique is, is particularly good or his fingering is really good or his, maybe his tune selection is very good or his variations in tunes are very good. All of that, it all comes into a, a general mix. Okay. And then later than get into the technical stuff, the crowns and... Uh, well, you see, the problem is, you know, if you get hung up on that sort of stuff, you know, mm -hmm. that you can get derailed very, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, that's something that, that, um, that, you know, comes to musicians over many, many years. And one of the things I found, particularly, you, you spoke about people coming to the tradition a bit later and wanting to learn, is that really what the problem is, is that their ear is too mature when they get to it. So they're hearing what a player who would have an above average yeah. talent that has taken them 35 years to achieve. And they want to achieve it in the space of five days. And it doesn't work like that. This is a process. Traditional music is, a, is, is an absolute process that's, that you start with and you grow with it. And you, you, know, you learn, you can't say you know, at the end of every week, I would have done this, that and the other. You may have learned to tune, but you're only learning notes at that stage. That's the problem. But some people get so wound up about elements of technique that they hear somebody doing, I want to do that. And they're not quite frankly, they're not ready to do it because they're just not kind of musically equipped in the, in, 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 in the technical sense to be able to achieve those things. And these things, you know, they're, they're kind of graduated and they take a long time to, you know, to, to, to be comfortable with. Okay. How long did it take you then to, everyone has their influences, how long did it take you to find your own particular voice? Well, I suppose in many ways you're, you're always looking for your voice. So that's why I'm saying it's a continuous journey. I mean, every time you take up the instrument, you, you encounter it differently. Uh, you know, you hear different players, you hear players and you say to yourself, God, you know, you think you've covered all the bases and then somebody will come up with a, an angle on a tune and you say, God, I hadn't thought of that one. You know, which is, which is the beauty of the whole thing. That's the, that's the excitement of it. For me, I suppose I started... Uh, from about the age of 13, I started playing the fiddle at six, but from about 13 on, I really started to take it, to take an interest in it. And, and it's been a constant journey ever since. I mean, that's it. And I, that's what I love about it because it's always going to excite me, you know? Yeah, but say when it's 77 and Glacken came out and you were very pleased with it, what, I presume you were very pleased with it. Everybody else was very pleased with it. But when you listen to, to that, you think, yeah, I, I, know what I, I knew what I was about then at that particular time. I knew what I wanted to do and I achieved it on that album. Okay, I've moved on since then. Yeah, I mean, like in 1977, like, I mean, I was, you know, I'm in my early 20s and, you know, you're full of energy. And I, you know, I was wanting to, I was certain there were influences at work around that time. You know, and I was, I wanted to do things that were a little bit different. At the same time, I wanted to do things that were sort of in, in, in line with the tradition, but I wanted to sort of to go to, go to the edges, if you like. So, for example, uh, I mean, I was, uh, one of the things that if you, the opening track on that album, which I think is Patsy Tooby's Read or something, if I remember right, you know, I mean, I, I was very influenced by the playing of Tommy Potts at that stage. Mm. So I was kind of, you, I, you know, I purposely took some elements of things that Tommy did because I really wanted to incorporate those things into the way I played. Then I was really, uh, you know, at, at that time I was, there was a lot of young energy around and I wanted to play, I had met Michal Osuluan, the late Michal Osuluan. And we were doing a lot of sort of kind of 
experimental stuff for radio programs and things like that. So I wanted Mihawk to be on the, the album with me. So we did a couple of sort of off the wall things on that. Then I was interested in, for example, in, in a, a playing viola at the time. So I put down a track of viola. So those things were just sort of small statements that I was making at that particular stage. Well, uh, you brought the word up, so let's uh, talk about it. Um, this thing about, uh, I don't know whether you could call it uh, avant-garde or not, the stuff you've done with, say, uh, Una Mullahan. Uh, you've uh, famously done stuff with George Injection. Uh, you've famously done stuff with uh, John Cage and Ruratorio. What is it about those particular projects that thought that Paddy Glegan said himself, yeah, I'd like to be part of that? Uh, They're all very it, different, I know, but... They, they are, absolutely. And in each case, it's a journey into the unknown, which is great. If you, if you can imagine yourself sort of, you know, kind of walking into a, a very dense forest and you're trying to, you're trying to kind of you know, get, find your way through it in some ways, and there's all that sort of sound and there's all that you know, sound of underfoot and everything. And your comfort, your comfort blankets in some way is removed from you. And there's an element of, well, this could go horribly wrong or it could go, could go really well. And in most cases, I, I absolutely enjoyed it. And I, I just like the idea of meeting people who have a different kind of musical orbit, if you like. Uh, and it was really exciting. Like, I mean, to work with John Cage like, over a period of seven, eight years, that was just it was quite an extraordinary uh, experience to, to come up against, uh, to encounter a man who, whose view of music was so completely on the edge, you know, and to be able to relate to that and him to be able to relate his particular music philosophy to the way I played music, that I found that really, really satisfying. And I've been doing some work with, with, uh, with Una, Una Monaghan, who's a great, I know, uh, fan of John Cage's. And I just like to hear, you know, it's nice to hear people who have, again, their own unique way of going at it. Yeah, um, I actually heard Ruratorio, but it was the Belfast version. And yes. uh, it was done up here, and it was the most incredible thing I have ever heard. It was one of the most incredible musical experiences. You know, I left it, and when I went out, I heard everything going around, yes. going around, uh, going on around me. I heard people speaking. I heard cars going by. I heard birds in the sky. It was an incredible oral experience, and it was yes. wonderful to do that and to experience that. Did you find something similar with uh, the Dublin version? It made you listen more. Well, the Dublin version will, 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 you know, is, is based on Finnegan's Wake, as you know. And when we when we did it originally, uh, the first time I played it was in in Toronto, and I remember at the rehearsals, and I really I I, I hadn't a clue what was going on around me. I was just I was immersed in this sort of sound, and I really did not know and. I remember the late Liam O'Flynn was with me too, and I remember saying, what are we at here? You know, we just, it was really challenging. But by the time we actually got to the first performance, we started to realize that there was something really special going on. And every time we played that, we heard different things happening. I mean, there's, 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 there's one particular sound in it of a, of a child crying that, that uh, John Fullerman, who was the sound man on it, recorded up in the Phoenix Park, child in a pram, and it would, Go right through your heart. It's such the most wonderful primeval sound that they got. But yet it's it's in this music, and it just for some reason one particular it just jumped out at us. We heard it, 
And that was the thing about Groratorio. Depending on the room you were in, depending on where you were at, uh, you, you heard it differently every single time. It was never the same piece of music. It was a different experience every time. Well, a bit like Chad itself uh, as well. Yeah. Cl uh, collaborations, you've collaborated with all the greats in duos and in bigger bands, but in duos, Robbie Hannon, Paddy Keenan, Michael O'Donnell, Donald Lunny. What is the chemistry that's needed for you and another guy to hit it off musically? Uh, trust. You've got to trust them musically. You've got to trust their instinct. They have to trust yours. Uh, you'll, the names you've mentioned there, you notice there's a right few pipers uh, <laughs> in that. Uh, and I am particularly, I, I love playing with pipes. I absolutely adore playing with the other pipes. I think the fiddle and pipes, they just wrap themselves around each other in a way that is just brilliant. And if you get it right, it can be really, really satisfying. Uh, working with Michal, working with Donald as well. Like these are people that I've known since you know, go back a long, long way. And we know each other very well on a personal basis. We trust each other. And it goes back to an awful lot of personal enjoyment, which we can sort of, which we were able to kind of, to, to bring together, you know. So, you know, like if I'm out on the road with Donald Money, like it's, it's always a great, it's a great experience. Great, it's a great social occasion as well as a, uh, you know, a, a professional job to be done. You know, we kind of enjoy it. I Loved being on the road with Leib. I used to love being on the road with Michal. You know, Robbie and myself haven't done it so much uh, in recent years, but it's just something I, you know, I'd love to do because you know, playing the playing with Robbie is is kind of it's really really exciting. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if we're missing this in the podcast, but the sheer fun and the enjoyment that there is in traditional music. You know, we can talk about techniques and things, but it's the utter joy of it. Uh, just reading a guy, just back to what we were saying earlier, a guy called Howard Shue, uh, who is from Los Angeles and who learned uh, the fiddle, went to the uh, Frankie Kennedy Summer School. Yes. And he was there in 2000, I think, which was the year of uh, a big, big snowfall. And uh, the thing he remembers vividly is yourself and Donald Lunny just playing in an impromptu concert. And that sort of thing stays with people all their lives. Uh, I was at, believe it or not, there was a Bothy Bond tribute uh, band which played in Belfast and it was absolutely fabulous, uh, yeah. you know, so it's a huge joy in, in, well, for an audience. Is that the same with a musician? Do they get the same, can they get the same sort of enjoyment that uh, an audience will get? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's times, you know, when it, it hits you quite unexpectedly that all of a sudden, you know, you realise that You've, you've kind of gone into a, another sort of level in, in the playing that's happening on the stage, that sort of kind of internal combustion between the two musicians when that, when that takes hold. Uh, and that is, that's a very, very satisfying moment when that happens. As Liam O'Flynn says, when you get into the zone, that's what Liam used to say. If we get into the zone, we'll be doing well. And that's, I perfectly understand what he meant by that, you know, because when you would get into the zone, you knew you were in the zone and that just the, you, you forgot about everything else that was around you, just this was about playing this music as best you could, you know? Yeah, in the moment, sort of a... In the moment, absolutely, a, yeah. A, 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 zen sort of a, a zen sort of a thing. Uh, are regional styles still important as they used to be? Uh, well, I, I personally think so, yes. I'm still intrigued by them. I'm still... 
I love, I just, I just love the whole sort of kind of the, the, that sort of patchwork of different ways of playing that you get from different county to county. They're like accents, you know. Now, unfortunately, a lot of accents are beginning to disappear, you know, because because of the way mass communication and all that. And the same thing is to an extent happening to music, which I think is to be regretted, uh, because there's nothing nicer than hearing, you know, say. Uh, a, a version of a tune played by John Doherty, but you hear another version of it played by Paul O'Keefe and, and, and Kerry with its completely different angle and slant to it. Mm. That's that's re that's really exciting. Uh, but you know, again, you know, I think a lot of young musicians are. The, the music has shifted, I think, quite a lot from being a solo art to an ensemble. It's been it's been kind of defined in an ensemble context as opposed to a solo context. Mm -hmm. I still prefer to define it as a solo, uh, essentially a, a solo art as opposed to the, the group. Is that because of where it came from? Because it came from uh, the blind harpers and it came from uh, itinerant uh, fiddlers, you know, is no, that it's, part it, of it? There's, there's, this, there's this awful drive to make it commercial. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, in a few, with a few exceptions, you know, you are not going to hear a solo fiddle player in the middle of the day on RT Radio 1. So it's what people can actually take. People find the notion of the traditional musician without accompaniment, just a raw bar. They find that very, very hard to, to, to take in. So they need it dressed up in a particular way. So therefore, you know, everything is pushed into a, into a, group, a group situation as opposed to, which my preference is for solo. Yeah. Is that because of the audience? Is it because of the the media? And you know all about the media from yeah, uh, media, from yeah. uh, the long note and the, the pure drop, but yeah. they are sort of the exceptions to the rule. Yeah, no, no, the, it is it is media driven. I mean, like an awful lot of stuff that's written about the music is quite utterly nonsense, to be perfectly honest with you. You know, uh, and it's sort of reference points that people have that they they really don't have much of an idea. As to you know where a lot of this music you know from from where it emanates you know uh, and and you know and the media does need it, it needs to be able to sort of it has to it has to feel comfortable it has to be able to categorize things and there the reference points that become really really simplistic whereas you know if if you put you know to a lot of musical journalists you say here sit down there and listen to Tommy Potsner for an hour and a half. And tell me what you think about it, and tell me, you know, what you feel about that music. I think they'd be well, they'd be, they'd be pretty hard put. Is there anything left to find? I know you've worked in uh, archives, and I know that people aren't getting on their bicycles and going for twenty miles to listen to uh, a bachelor box player or fiddler anywhere. Is there still a lot of music to find, or do we need to go through uh, the books, through O'Neill's and stuff, and? Well, there's all, there is always stuff to find. There is always stuff which is brilliant, you know. And if you take, for example, like O'Neill, O'Neill is still like is still still the kind of the Bible. But if you take, say, in the last couple of years, the Goodman collection, it's been two mm -hmm. volumes of Goodman has been, and it is just the most it's a treasure trove of music. The most beautiful tunes are in that book, and they're there for anybody who wants to who wants to have a go at them. And, and that in itself is a great adventure, also being able to. Go to a manuscript and pick up a tune and say, "God, there's a there's the makings of a really nice tune that in here." And you pick the tune out and then you make your own of it. And that's that's a very very satisfying process. 
So there's loads and loads and loads of music. There's loads and loads and loads of musicians who are really worth listening to if people take the time, but listen. Because when you go to a lot of these summer schools and festivals, it's all about just playing at 150 miles an hour. And there's a huge opportunity being lost to hear kind of, uh, you know, the real thing, because there are so many musicians now who are, you know, they're very, very proficient themselves. They've come through all these group classes. They're really good. But the one thing they haven't been trained in is the art of listening. And that, that is really important. And come to my other hobby horse now while I'm at it, uh, which is um, the, issue, the issue of audience. I mean, we have so many people playing traditional music now, but we don't have an audience. Everyone's participating. But to play traditional music, you put it out there. Somebody has to receive it. And there aren't as many people receiving it as they used to be back in the 70s. Well, certainly speaking of Belfast, I think that's changing. And I think the audience for traditional music is growing uh, immensely because we have great venues. We have the Dunkern, uh, we have uh, Calderon, and of course the people uh, behind this podcast on Drehid yeah. have uh, been doing phenomenal stuff, bringing uh, big smallish audiences, but smallish audience who will sit and you will not hear a pin drop. Good. You know, whereas you might go to a gig with a band and everyone's at the bar and, and, and drinking, which is ridiculous. But, well, but, 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 but somebody would come, come down to Dublin and, 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 and give us the formula for that because it's, it's not great this side of the border, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. Um, just mentioning if there's if there, if there still old stuff to be found, what do you think of the new stuff that's being written in the traditional form? Does it add a lot to the, the repertoire or is it a waste of time? Or is it a bit of both? Well, it's a bit of everything. You know, they, like... An awful lot of it, uh, like there are a lot of musicians who only want to play the stuff they've written themselves. You know, so they write reels and jigs and that sort of thing. And so that's grand. The, how do you evaluate that? Well, the way you evaluate that is that if other musicians are going to play it, that's, 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 the, that's, that's the standard. If, if a tune can't find its way into the tradition, yeah, yeah. then it, it's, it's not very successful. And when it gets into the, the, into the tradition, then it must become anonymous. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Oh, you know, yeah, oh, yeah, no, I understand, yeah. You know, you know, it has to become anonymous. So you can't be having people's names, like, you know, because that's because mm. the entire notion of it, if you understand what I'm saying. You know, so, like, if you take, for example, I'm going to give you a classic case of a tune like The Green Fields of Glentown that was written by Tommy Peoples. And every one of us played that tune, and we did not know that Tommy wrote that tune. We didn't yes. know that. Yes, but, 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 but we subsequently found out that it was him who did it. But this tune was written, and everybody just said, wow, this is a really seriously good fiddle tune to play in a fiddle. And nobody asked a question as to who wrote it. We just played it. And we all went, to, we all went about our merry way, and there's so many different versions of it recorded. Yeah, it was Tommy who wrote the tune. Now, I can't think of a, of a more eloquent sort of way of of praising that tune than by what, I'm just, what I'm just saying. Yeah, but is it not also part of the etiquette? If you are playing a tune, you tell people where you got it from. It tells yeah. them yeah. people. But, 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 it might, but it might not necessarily be from the composer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and especially nowadays, you know, where your people will hear stuff online or on a CD. That's the trouble, you know. So, yeah. so that's so so that's that's kind of the the way I would go about evaluating tunes. Uh, to answer your question more, uh, some of the stuff is some people write really nice tunes, and some of them then kind of just leave me pretty cold, you know. Mm. Don't you? So and, and therefore I don't therefore I don't play them. Yeah, but but that's fine, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's people's taste. It's it's whatever they like. If they don't like it, yeah. but that's fine. Yes. You don't have to like it. Absolutely. You don't have to like John Cage. You don't have to like Paddy Gregan. No. But if no, you do, absolutely it's don't. Fabulous. Um, okay. Do you listen to many new bands? Would would you go or players? Do you go before coronavirus? Would you have gone out much? Uh, to gigs I, and things? Not no no no. I, I not a great attender at, at gigs. Uh, I kind of tend to go sort of word of mouth when people say to me, I, did you hear such and such a person? Then I, I check them out. Uh, and invariably, like I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm well satisfied when I hear them because they are normally really, really good players, you know. And there are, as I said, look, there's just so many of them around the place, you know. Uh, and I just, I just love listening to their, uh, to their music and, and their particular take on it, you know. Okay. And yourself, do you still have the same drive, the same enthusiasm? Do you ever get up in the morning and think, well, I won't lift the fiddle today? Does that ever happen? Well, well I have a kind of a, a little discipline that I do. The first thing I do, what I do, I take the fiddle out of the case and I leave it there in front of me. So I have, I have to pass it kind of 500 times in the day. And at some stage, I, I pick it up and I might play a tune. Other times, I might, you know, but for example, the other, the other day I was going out, I was waiting for somebody to collect me. And I had about a half an hour to kill. So I should look at play a tune. And like the, the, the time went, in, like it was only sort of three or four minutes, but I was actually ended up playing for 40 minutes and I didn't realize it. But I was kind of lost in it in a way. And I was enjoying it. And I was only messing, you know, I was tipping it, bits of tunes and bits. But I just enjoyed that. And it just, it took me into, into a nice little zone before I went out, you know. Okay. Well, we know, we know Polly Gleck and the. Uh... The fabulous traditional player. I won't use the word purist, which I don't believe you are terribly keen off, uh, keen on. So I hate it. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> I think it's a dreadful word. Yeah, and so it is because it, yeah, because it, it leaves out so much stuff. And uh, Carolyn um, dabbled in all kinds of things. Tommy Potts probably was influenced by yeah. everybody. Everybody's been influenced by everybody else. So it's not really such a thing as. As a purist, I'll ask the question: Is there such a thing then as the pure drop? Is there such? Sorry, I beg your pardon. Is there such a thing as the pure drop? Uh, I think there is. Yes, I think I would regard Tommy Potts as the pure drop. I regard John Doherty as the pure drop. I regard Paul O'Keefe, Matt Malloy. I mean, these people. This this music is kind of very, very rooted. That's what I mean by the pure drop. It's absolutely rooted. But at the same time, and this is the thing that people don't get. Uh, I mean, Tommy Potts takes you into musical zones that very, very few people have, you know, can imagine. But it takes a while to get you. Paul Dougal Keith does it, John Doherty, these players, these musicians, these guys aren't purists, these are adventurers. And that's what people get. But, but, but because it's not dressed up with, 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 with guitars and bazookies and, 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 and rhythm and, and all sorts of electronic sort of add-ons, then you're sort of, you're kind of classed as some sort of a backwards person. That this is, like, what is innovation? What does that mean? You know, I mean, I would, I would stand over Tommy Potts' music till the day I die as being 
really seriously innovative. Okay. Um, if they were ever to build a time capsule, a traditional music uh, time capsule, and they wanted a tune, a putty glacken tune, uh, to be opened in uh, a thousand years' time, uh, which of your tunes would you choose? I, I'd probably go for maybe the, the first track I recorded on the Rorty Hill album with Don Lunny, uh, simply because their tunes, that, that album to me was sort of, was my sort of acknowledgement of John Doherty and his, his uh, influence on me and, and for all his kindness and everything that he gave me and that I got from him. Uh, and it's his version of, of, of a well-known tune called Sport and Paddy. So in some ways that kind of, off the top of my head, would be the tune I would say I should put that in the time capsule. Right, okay. And uh, we let people know that uh, a lot of your stuff is on Spotify, but don't listen to it. Listen to it on Spotify and then go out and buy an album and listen to it in the comfort of, of your own home and support uh, music as best you can. Well, I, there's nothing sure, and I mean, I, I do really, really feel so sorry for a lot of my musical colleagues, you know, who are younger than me, who are trying to keep families together, pay mortgages, and like this whole thing has kind of has pulled the rug out from under them, like completely. It's, it's not easy, and I mean, I would love to see people supporting kind of as much music as possible. The Spotify thing, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't even want to think about it. Honestly. <laughs> It, it upsets me so much because, uh, you know, there's nothing coming back to the people who, who create the music, you know, and that's really, really unfair. And it's just a pity that so many people, you know, kind of won't go out and just for the sake of 15 euro or 15 quid buy an album that would be yours and be there to listen to. Instead of that, people are sending stuff across to each other and everyone's, everyone's getting the enjoyment, but the poor musicians get nothing. Absolutely. So uh, on that rather depressing note, uh, Polly. Uh, oh, sorry. Depressing. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, but uh, if people are depressed, the best thing they can do to get a lift is to get into that zone and listen uh, to an album. So we're going to finish off with uh, Polly Glecken and uh, Donald Lonnie, and uh, hope you everyone enjoyed the podcast. Uh, from me and from uh, Polly Glecken, all the best, and thanks very much for listening.
Well, that's all for today, folks. So until the next time, from me, Robert McMillan, and the Erchudan Kjoil podcast from Madrid, Slana Gisbanacht.